Jesus' entry into um, Jerusalem is what we're thinking about. When I went to Israel, these are, these are, come from, these are meant to come from palm trees or date, date uh, trees. In, in, um, well, obviously they would have been in Israel. And they use every part of this tree. When you actually go to Israel, they talk about how this is the lifeblood of the, of, the, of the society. They use the trunk for building. They use the leaves. They use every part of it for, as well as the fruit. It's a, it's a very, very powerful symbol of life in Israel. I want to, to reflect on this whole journey of Jesus to Jerusalem and, and what happened in Jerusalem and see if we can learn th- some things from it. Just about six days before Jesus went into Jerusalem, let's just uh, think about what led up to Jesus going to the cross. I mean, I know, I mean, if I have to go to the dentist, I'm thinking six days before about how nice it would be to have that done. And Jesus has had this growing awareness. He would have read the Old Testament. He knew the scriptures. Once he knew, I mean, you, you realize that as Jesus grew, he was, he was God, but he was, or was also man. So he didn't have this kind of, um, I'm God, I know everything about you, I know what's going to happen. Because if he, did, if he lived like that, we wouldn't be able to be identifying with him and he with us. So one of the marvels of Jesus was that he became like us which means that he reduced to our capacity to know. He reduced to our capacity to not know. He had to walk by faith with his Father. He didn't uh, just kind of have it all rolled out. An angel appeared every morning with a blueprint. It was, um, it was a walk of faith. I suspect that Jesus had, just to try and make it real, Jesus is 18 maybe, maybe younger, in those cultures like the culture in Kotapalli where we visited in India, there were arranged mar- marriages. Jesus is a young man. And he goes, Dad, I want to get married. You can't. Why? It would cause too many complications. In order for you to do what you're doing, you can't be married. Why? Because my son cannot actually have children on this earth in a way that actually brings me glory. It's, it's part of the sacrifice. And so for Jesus... 18, 19, 20, his friends getting married. He probably went to lots of weddings, but he himself could not marry. Just something when, you know, one maybe doesn't think about. And it's not just for a few years. It's 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. He's probably working as a carpenter to, to, to support his family. Joseph uh, is reputed to have died early on. So when we're talking about a God who doesn't understand us, um, Jesus spent a fairly substantial amount of time in a small, out-of-the-way village called Nazareth um, earning a living, doing mundane things. And in that time, also reflecting on the bigger call on his life. And it might have been Jesus walking in the hills of Galilee or, or outside Nazareth saying, this year? This year? And we talked earlier about being patient uh, there's an element of walking with the Spirit of God sometimes is excruciatingly patient because we want everything now. And uh, imagine that time. Jesus was in the temple when he was about 10 years old. It's 20 years after that that he finally begins his ministry. Some of us want to jump into ministry with an experience at Bethel and that's it. We get angry. But God is interested in building the, our character and building our substance, building that relationship as we heard from Jenny, being in that house for five years did something. It doesn't, you don't appreciate it at the moment. Just saying that as a word of encouragement, actually, which is just because things aren't happening at your pace doesn't mean they're not happening. 
Pay attention to what's at hand. Be the best version of you that you can be now while you're waiting. And actually, you're not even, you, you see, you're waiting for something over here, but what you're doing now is what's something that you asked for over here. So we have to learn how to live in the present with hope and, and purpose. Does that make sense? So it's not always over here. It's actually living in the presence and the power of the moment. And so Jesus, you know, just six days before he went uh, up to Jerusalem, there was that moment where he was, John tells us about it, where he was actually in private in a, in sub, at, at, at supper with Simon, the Pharisee. And that woman Mary walk, comes in and, and, and weeps over his feet and uh, pours out the perfume over his feet. And there's a, there's a private, in a sense, declaration of, of, of the death that he's going to face and the perfume that anointed him. Simon was angry and, Peter was, and, and Jesus was delighted because Simon, said, Simon the Pharisee and others said, what a waste of money. It's funny how we can eat burgers and we can do all kinds of things when as soon as it comes to the Lord, it, we, we, get, we, we get really fussy over how the money is spent and we cut ourselves lots of slack. Just a thought. And so it's spring, it's about AD 30, it's the time of the Passover. Three times a year the Jewish people would go up to Jerusalem to celebrate a significant celebration of their, uh, of their walk with God as, as the nation of Israel. And they, actually I just want to even look before that in Matthew. I'm amazed, when you read between the lines, I'm, I, I'm amazed. Jesus in Matthew 20:17, he was, he was going up to Jerusalem. On the way he took the twelve aside. 12 aside and he said to them we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified on the third day he will be raised to life he tells them that the next sentence in Matthew then the mother of Zebedee's sons that's James and John came to Jesus with her sons and kneeled down and asked a favor of him the Son of Man is going to be flogged, he's going to be crucified, and the third day he'd rise again. And Mum comes with her two boys, and he says, What do you want? Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Talk about missing the boat. The mother wants her sons to be the big guys in the kingdom. My boys, James and John, Jesus, when you get there, make them the biggest ones, please. And Jesus, you know, he's, he doesn't get angry with her. He sort of says, it's not mine to give that. And he says to her, um, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And James and John, Peter wasn't the only one. James and John go, we, we can. You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And all through the, the scriptures, you have this juxtaposition between human beings getting on Jesus' bandwagon, very sincerely saying yes to him, and him, him trying to say to them, you don't have a clue what you're asking for. And he doesn't reject them, as he doesn't reject you or me, when we have conversations that if we could back off and really look at it, we would just go, oh, John, don't be so stupid. I can't believe I said that. But the real key of the message this morning is God's faithfulness despite our unfaithfulness. God's love and care despite our inappropriate responses. That God never changes. And so you have this um, 
situation where Jesus, he's he's coming toward Jerusalem. And it's these little details that I find so impressive. The little detail of um, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, he's heading towards the cross. He's heading towards the most violent moment of his life, the most violent interaction, something that would be catastrophic. And two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet because they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. There's encouragement in these words. Sometimes we need to slow down and look at what they're saying. These, these men were, were, it was the only chance they had. And I think sometimes we need a sense of urgency in our lives that goes, this might be the only chance you have. I think we put off and procrastinate all kinds of things. We accept all kinds of things. And the only chance they had, Jesus is going by. When we sort of say, you can go up for prayer, this might be the only chance you have. I pray for God to give us a greater sense of urgency, which is not out of panic, it's out of hunger. It's just out of, I want to go after everything. And I'm not going after it so that God does this magic work over me, so I'm automatically transformed, because I'm a living testimony to it doesn't work. You actually come to God and say, Lord, here I am. Pour out your spirit over me so that I have the courage and the integrity to take the next step that will bring life into my being and that you can actually work with. So I give and he gives. I respond and he's, he's, my, he's promised to me is every step you take, I'll be with you. Sit in the armchair and ask me to do it. I guess you're going to be sitting in an armchair and you'll just get armchair sores on your butt. And you'll probably be a pain in the butt because you'll be complaining about what God hasn't done for you but you've been too lazy and too proud and too unwilling to actually get up yourself. It's a cheerful message leading up to Easter. But you see, the, the, the problem is that this Easter story and this going into Jerusalem is exactly like us. It's not to condemn us. It's we need to know ourselves, our tendencies, in order that we can actually do something about it. And the good news is that in all our tendencies, God still says, I'm for you. I'm not against you. But I am inviting you into relationship with me, which means you have to do stuff. And so Jesus, all the people are saying, this is really important, man, stop. You know, he's going, they don't know he's going to die. They, they just, he's important. You know how people are when you have an important person around and everybody around them thinks they're also important. Now I'm responsible to stop you. And it gets all very puffed up. And Jesus hears the cry. And what does he do? He stops. And I'm impressed with that. I'm impressed with Jesus stopping for people while he's going on his way to his death. He's just got time. And what does he say? Jesus stopped and called them and he says, what do you want me to do for you? That's why I keep saying to people, what do you want from Jesus? What do you want God to do for you? And then how are you going to respond? I believe sometimes we pray too much because prayer sometimes causes us to avoid dealing with stuff. So when you pray with somebody, you start saying, so what's happening? What do you mean, what's happening? Are you feeling it? Is anything happening? No, I just want Jesus to take it all away. But what happens if he wants to take it away with you? What happens if you're actually holding this real attitude? And he says, this is locking like a logjam that's locking. I want to answer, but this is getting, I need your free will to align with mine. I need you to submit. I need you to trust. And it's in conversation that what's inside us gets exposed, not to be condemned, but to be freed. So he says to the blind people, and if you've seen blind people, you know they're blind, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, "What? we want to see. 
we want our sight. And Jesus had compassion on them, touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Amazing. Then he comes up to Jerusalem, and they go to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sends his disciples to go to the village ahead and to get uh, a colt and a donkey. And he knows the prophecy. It's from Zechariah 9, talking about the king riding in on a donkey. That Zechariah was written around 518, 520 to 518 BC, before Christ. 500 years before, at least. Now just, just get this part. Zechariah is a prophet in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a recording of God's deliberations with Israel over about 2,000 years. Zechariah is written and recorded, is down in manuscript form as part of an Old Testament scroll 200 years before Jesus is born. That is historical fact. It's not whistling in the dark. That's not saying, oh, you're making it up. That is historically verifiable fact. It's like Isaiah was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's, there's all kinds of the, the, the documentary evidence, the, the um, manuscripts for the Old Testament and the New Testament verify the biblical accounts more than any other written piece of literature in history. It's why it's helpful sometimes for us as Christians to know what we believe, why we believe. And very often people like, they make statements like, oh, you can't believe the Bible these days. It's, it's just ignorance. And it, that doesn't mean I accuse them. I just say it's, it's ignorance. It's totally non-threatening. But the Bible is something that's very, very substantially reliable from archaeological, from historical, from historical documents, all kinds of things. So what I'm, what I'm saying is Jesus had this book of Zechariah and he would have read it and he would have known what it said and it was foretelling the prophetic word of what God was and so he goes, I'm, I'm the man and he's fulfilling that. Some of the stuff he could have fulfilled because he knew it was there but there was lots of prophetic words that he couldn't have fulfilled. Like he would hang on a cross, like he would... Um, not a bone on his body would be broken in the crucifixion. There's no way he can fulfill that. Like he will rise on the third day. He can't make that happen. Uh, so I'm just boasting about the faithfulness of God revealed in scripture that is reliable. And Jesus goes into J Jerusalem on a donkey because the victorious army generals would go in on a white horse uh, declaring power and victory. And the people would would meet them and they would put their cloaks down in front and they would wave branches and they would say Hosanna this was the welcome to a king or a victorious conqueror and so Jesus rides in on this donkey to this Hosanna to the son of David blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna in the highest and they didn't have a clue what was going on in John 12 just to give you I'm not making this up in John 12 verse 16 it says John tells us this He's the one whose mother said, I want him to do the bacon. I mean, John might have said, Mum, shut up. You're embarrassing us. Wait, what is it? Where is it here? John 12, verse 16. He gives the account of riding into Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your, kingdom, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And in verse 16, he says this. He says, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him? And I say that to also encourage you and to encourage us that sometimes the very thing God is doing right in your midst you miss because you don't see it. And so these guys all, they waved, their, they, they sang their hosannas and they welcomed Jesus. Why did they do that? They didn't know he was coming as the Messiah. 
They didn't know he was coming because he was going to, to change the history of the world. They came because they thought that he was going to set them free from the Roman occupation. And they thought perhaps their years of oppression under Roman rule were going to be freed by this man who was going to lead an uprising and liberate them from the Romans. That was their limit. That was their way. That was their life. And sometimes when we're speaking to God, that's how we speak. It's all we can see. And so that's our context. And God's context is, way, context is different. It's bigger than that. And so you have within a f- a two sentences what happens. Jesus enters Jerusalem. Everybody's doing these accolades, singing the songs. And then they say to him, who is this? And what, is he, what, what do the crowd say? This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. He's just been downgraded. He's no longer Hosanna. He's the prophet from Galilee. That j- it just shows you it's very fickle and it's very fine line between the praise of people and them changing, which is what they did in the next few days. Their expectation, as I said, was to, li- to bring liberation and freedom to their circumstances. Their, 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 their heart's cry was that they would no longer be subject to the Romans who were brutal. Their heart's cry was that God would liberate Israel. And everything on God's heart that was happening through Jesus was for the world, not just for Israel. It was to bring... Into, into light and into focus the nature of a God who is a suffering servant who says the issue is not the Roman rule. The issue is human sin. Underneath all of this is the nature of human beings that is broken under sin. And sin is I in the middle, S-I-N, I in the middle. I am looking for a solution for our problems either politically or in some economically. In some way, I am ge- we're going to make our world better And our history shows us that I cannot make my world better. We live in the most privileged continent the world has ever known, ever. It is also the most depraved, most greedy, most corrupt, because human beings are human beings are human beings. I don't know whether I should really say we deserve Donald Trump, but, but, you know, it's not funny, really. But him is us. And so God was saying, I'm not coming. My mind is not so small as to focus on Israel alone, no matter how much I love her. My mind is on the salvation of all human beings for all time. I'm dealing with the problem of sin, which is what Satan... Oh, we haven't got time to go into how he robbed us of, of our inheritance and how Jesus was coming to bring back the inheritance we had lost in the garden. And so they welcomed him in to Jerusalem as the one who would deliver. And what does he do? The first thing he does is so politically incorrect. They welcome him into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and he looks around the temple and he sees people selling God for for the, the price of sacrifices and making those who are making this pilgrimage to the Passover pay through their nose for things that will help them feel that they are accepted by God. And he just goes ballistic. He's probably been churning this one over since he was born. Just give me one chance. But, you know, I don't think Jesus was just venting anger. He was declaring something. He was saying the place that has become the house of God is now a house of prostitution and extortion. It is nothing of what we had in mind. It has been taken over by human beings who have peddled religion and are now using religion as a power tool to control people all across the nation. In fact, the religious leaders are in bed with the Romans and together they rule this nation. And so what does he do? He turns over these tables 
and he speaks in anger and says, my, my house will be a house of prayer. And how do you know he's not lost it? Because there's some blind people who come to him and he says, and he heals them in the temple at the same time. You just turn the page. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and they got mad. See, when God comes into the situation, he doesn't work according to our agendas. He doesn't work according to what we think. And I just want us to, to spend a bit of time as we, as we reflect on this visit to Jerusalem to say that this whole journey into Jerusalem, you can actually look upon it like a metaphor for prayer or how you talk to God, where you can actually begin by praising God and thanking Him for all He is and for all He's done and welcoming Him into your heart because we are temples. And then He comes in and He looks around. And the loving God, the loving God in Jesus looks around the temple of our lives and he doesn't necessarily turn over tables, but he does say, this needs to go. What has happened to the temple that is your life? I mean, you welcomed me in so I would take care of the Romans. You welcomed me in so that I would deal with the people that are difficult in your life. You welcomed me in so that I would make your life happy. And I'm actually saying I've come in so that I can be Lord of your life. And out of that place, we will change the world. And so the Palm Sunday is this metaphor for how is my life a temple that glorifies God. And the only way my life can become a temple that glorifies God is for me to welcome him in and then to trust him with the interior decorating. To trust him to say, Jesus, what do you see in me that is causing you grief? You see, there are two things about his presence. The one is that. I mean, he might see you and I'm just making this up obviously he might see you and go you really love money you like a money changer look at you material stuff everywhere that defines you if I turn this table over what are you going to do if I challenge you on money what are you going to do you're going to love me like you said you would or do you change not that Lord not that Lord what about this relationship if I tip this one over if I touch it what's going to happen am I still going to be your savior am I still going to be your friend what about this career move how you spend your time if I challenge you on that, are you still going to be my friend? Are you still going to sing Hosanna? Or do you fall silent? How many of the things in the temple of your life are untouchable? And you sit here and you read this Palm Sunday thing and say, oh, I'm never like that. And he goes, you are exactly like that. When I come into your temple, there's a whole area that you won't let me go to. You don't understand that I come in in order to set free. And everything you hide is a symptom of the darkness in you, not of the light. Everything you're afraid of my touching is an indication of how little you trust. Do you really think I'm going to give you stones when you ask for bread? I'm going to an incredible length to show you my love. And this whole week I'm going to show you my love. I'm going to ask you, whether it's now or it's on the Resurrection Sunday, I'm still going to say, do I have freedom in your temple to do what we need to do together? And that means I need you to release things to me. I might give them back to you. I just want you to know. I just want to know that they are, you're free. Does that make sense? You see, freedom is about surrender, and surrender is about yielding everything to God. And you know you're yielded when there is nothing left to yield. And and yet at the same time, that's on one level because if 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 you're like me, that goes deeper and deeper over the years. God, you know, God asks somebody to do this now because that's what they can handle. In five years' time, it'll be different. He'll take you deeper. And he'll ask you for things five years ago he wouldn't have because you wouldn't have been ready to hear it. But his motive 
is you asked me to set you free. You asked me to heal you. You asked me to make you a child of the living God who's not religious like those people you hate over there. So if we're in relationship, then let's walk together in relationship. And you see, the other part of that presence in the temple was the blind and the lame coming to him. Because you have that tension where the money changers are there defying things and using things, and he challenges them. And he challenges us where our free will just inserts ourselves and does what we want, and then we ask him to bless us, and, we, and he just says, still, that is wrong. I'm telling you that now. Listen to me. No, 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 you don't understand. Come back when you're willing to look at that. The other side of it is the part of me that is exposed as lame and crippled and blind. And he has huge compassion on that. And he says to me, come to me and let me heal that part of you. So you can bring your lameness and your crippledness to him. He doesn't treat it all the same. He reads us better than we read ourselves. Sometimes we think he's going to berate us and he says, I see somebody who's blind here. So let's walk together through this and I'll heal you of that so that you actually have the strength and the courage to do the thing that you never thought you could do. You see, don't try and write your script into Jesus' heart. Jesus is much nicer and he's much more creative and he's much more profound. Just give him the room and just let him lead. And he will speak through a, a sermon, he'll speak through a friendship, he'll speak through reading the scriptures, he'll speak through all kinds of stuff. Just let him be the Lord of the temple. Welcome him in and let him be what only he could be. Does it make sense? Some of us, I just want to just keep on saying again and again, he is worth trusting. And if you want to know why, look at this week. Look at what he has done. And he will take you at the pace that is right for you. Just You will tend to baby yourself. That's why you need brothers and sisters. Because you'll, you'll tend to go, I'm not ready yet, I'm not ready yet. I need this. And you go, rubbish. You're saying I don't want to. So sometimes we're praying for things that need to be killed. And the Lord is in resurrecting things that need to come to life. Let's stand and let's uh, talk to Jesus about this. The reason you stand is so that whatever you're thinking can fall into your heart. Because I don't, well, I do care if you think this is a good word or not, but Jesus will take the worst word and make it good if we need to hear and we're hungry to hear. So what's he saying to you right now? Because what he's wanting to do is bring life into us. So Father, I bless you for that journey into Jerusalem, which is so much a symbol of the journey that you take into our hearts and lives. And we confess to you that we are very able to welcome you on a Sunday morning and deny you on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, we're, very wel- we're very good at having our hopes lifted because of what you're going to do in our lives and getting a word of prophecy that your favor is upon us, but then we don't cooperate with our lifestyle. We're good at waving a branch in the morning and crucifying you in the evening by our denials. And so we just own that, Father. We are a people who need you more than we know. And we thank you that we stand here on the basis of your journey to Jerusalem and your, res- your, your life, death, and resurrection to know that our hope is in your faithfulness. And so wherever we are this morning, we thank you for your love, reassuring us that I'm with you. And speaking into us spirits to not be afraid. I used to be so afraid of if I gave everything to Jesus, he would mess up my life. When I yielded myself as fully as I knew how, he sent me to Oxford, the last place on earth I thought I'd ever go. All I'm saying is, he was much nicer. 
The worst thing he did probably was send me to Port Alberni when I said, Lord, send me anywhere. I'm joking. We always think coming to us is the best thing on earth. And I could give you lots of stories of trusting him. And you probably have your own. But Father, I just pray for an extraordinary measure of faith and trust to be released here into your heart, into your faithfulness, into your goodness, that nothing we hold would be worth keeping from you. Because, you know, one of the things you can say to God is, and I've said this to him, I don't know how to let this go, but I want to want it. He will at some point say, how long do you want to suffer? Because unless we actually sometimes choose something, it's a mystery to me. But Father, I just pray for your grace as well to be released. Grace to give you the lordship of our lives. To be able to say, Lord, come into my temple. That is your temple. And I just give you permission to make yourself at home here more than you might have been. And if there are things that are of concern to you that are in me, I give you permission to talk to me about it. And I thank you for your love because you're not talking to me angrily. You're going to talk to me with grace because God's desire is to raise up a people who are in love with him and who are sold out to him. And to stand before his cross this week and go, there is nothing I can give you to repay what you have given me. You took all my sin upon you that I might take all the blessing upon me. There is nothing worthwhile in life I can hold on to that brings life into my spirit as much as I give myself to you so that you can bring life into my spirit. Father, come Holy Spirit, just minister to us, we pray. Your faithfulness, your goodness, cause us to be hungry for you.